0: Welcome to Fostering Hope, a program that opens a door into the world of foster care and adoption, sponsored by Foster Adopt Connect. You'll hear stories from all facets of foster care, from kids who have experienced the system firsthand, from parents who are taking on the challenges and rewards of creating forever families for foster children, and from child welfare workers and policymakers who work within the system while also working to make it better. Besides hearing important stories, you'll learn how you can help society's most vulnerable children in big ways or small. Please welcome our host, the Youth Program Supervisor at Foster Adopt Connect, Nathan Ross. Hi, welcome back to Fostering Hope. This is your host for today, Liz Luce, with my co-host Jennifer Townsend. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. And we have a very special guest today. You will know him also as a host of Fostering Hope, uh, Nathan Ross. Hello. He is going to talk to us a little bit about his experience um, before going into foster care and uh, after being adopted, and a little bit about what that looked like for him. So, Nathan, if you could just tell us a little bit of personal stuff about you, that would be great.
1: Yeah, of course. So, I really was interested in being the guest on this segment because we really were talking about attachments and teen development and things like that, and though I am not a teen anymore, uh, I am not so far removed from that experience that I have forgotten (laughs) what it was like. So, though my name is Nathan Ross now, I was born Ronald Bass, and I grew up in Kansas City. I've lived here my whole life, lived with my biological mom and an older sister, I had three Triplet younger brothers and my super creative mom named them Larry, Gary, and Jerry. So that was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. early on, I mean, we grew up because my mom had all five of us before she was, I think, 23. The high school diploma, we didn't have a lot. So early on, we, you know, kind of learned that we were, um, doing without, but it was great for us because we had our mom, you know, and so a lot of our experiences were about being with her, and because she was so young, she was like a big kid to us, you know, mm-hmm. and very playful and things. Um, and so it wasn't really until I was about five years old that we started to have our first experiences that I can vaguely remember with the child welfare system, and at the time we were getting uh, hotline calls mostly for neglect. My people in the community were seeing that we didn't have uh, the proper clothing on, you know, high water pants, things like that. hmm worried about our eating habits and dirty and stuff. And so we had those hotline calls. And back when I was, before I came into care, it was very much a practice to have the interviewer ask questions of the child with the parent in the room. And so it was not a big deal to us. I can remember, you know, even back then, knowing that my mom was the greatest thing. And so we had no intention of telling anything that was wrong. But for us, honestly, at that time, nothing seemed wrong. We had to us everything we needed. And so about the time that I was seven, really, there started to be that shift in our family. My mom struggled very, she had a very difficult time managing being a parent of five children and trying to maintain any relationship with a a significant other. Mm -hmm. So my biological sister, Katina, and I share the same father, and then the triplet brothers have a different dad, and they're biracial. And so both dads were out of the picture before I could remember, and my mom continually had different men in the house. Um, And again, it was that struggle because we couldn't go anywhere, and they could. And so we pretty quickly got put on the back burner. We were those kids who you weren't supposed to be seen or heard. You know, We stayed in our rooms. We stayed very quiet, or there were consequences. And we grew up in a community where having spankings was no big deal. People Mm -hmm. used switches and belts. That was the norm. You knew you respected your elders. You knew, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, you were always very, you know, appropriate and if you weren't anyone who was in your family line or was associated with your family or went to the same church as you could spank you. And mm-hmm. so things now that would get someone hotline quickly were things that were okay for us, mm-hmm. but again, we started to recognize that the things that we were getting um, beaten for were starting to become really just Ridiculous, you know, things like walking across the upstairs and because the floor creaked, mm-hmm. you know, it disturbed my mom. Or asking when we were going to eat. Um, things like that. Or just because she was having a bad day and wanted to take her frustrations out on us. Um and so even while all that was happening though, for me, she was still birth mom. She was still the person that took care of us, that showed enough love. As we were developing, that we had those attachments to her, that we had those connections with her Mm -hmm. that made her, again, the greatest thing. And so as we started having more of those hotline calls and I started to understand what they were asking for, it was very much my purpose to make sure that they thought everything in our home was okay. And so they would ask, are you being fed? Of course we were. How did your mom discipline? Well, we go to timeout. You know, sometimes she will give us a little spanking, but it's not anything severe. Um, and, you know, kind of elaborate on stories that really, as we went further and further into the years with my mom, became a way for me to live out what we had hoped would be our reality. Um, so that became our norm. And really, I think when we first started being starved, it came from a reaction that my mom was on welfare, and I, I truly believe that she wasn't able to buy food at one point in time. Mm-hmm. And because she was prideful, it was hard for her to say, I can't buy food. So instead she told us it was because our behavior. And seeing the con- how that affected us, you know, starving, became just part of the everyday consequence. If we did anything that she thought was misbehaving, we would go a day, a week, maybe two weeks without solid meals, in which mm-hmm. time we would have bread, water, and that was it. Uh, Unfortunately, because we were being starved for such long times at this point, when we would finally get a meal, our bodies would reject the food, so we would vomit. And then she would see that as disrespecting her, Mm -hmm. disobeying, and so our punishment for starvation would go even longer.
0: Mm -hmm. Were you in school during that time?
1: We were in school at that time, and for me, school was absolutely nothing. I focused on getting food when i was at school my Mm -hmm. whole thing was getting food and being the class clown i wanted everyone to think that again my life was fine and so i was the disrupting kid who couldn't focus and i didn't know anything that was going on with the lessons because we were going to school but not all not straight through if we were on severe punishment my mom would keep us at home to make sure we didn't eat at all Mm -hmm. and so instead of telling people oh i don't understand the material i could just you know, goof off and, oh, I don't care about this, I don't care about math. And then I would hoard food, me, me and my siblings, we would hoard food, take it back home and try to hide it so that we could ration it out as long as we needed to When it, through whatever starvation stretch we were going into.
2: So you were the class clown at home or at school. At home, were you the primary peacekeeper or did you all kind of...
1: Yeah. And Hold so role. my mom was very good at manipulating people, especially her children. And so one of the things that she told me because I was the oldest boy at the time was that I had to be the man of the house when there wasn't one. Uh, and then she had a different relationship with my sister, who's actually older than me. And that that female bonding. This is my daughter. And so we split kind of the responsibility of taking care of the house when she wasn't there, mm-hmm. especially if, again, we weren't allowed to go to school. And so it, she was so good at at scaring us that she could leave and go to work for eight hours and tell us that we were supposed to be starving for the day. And we would, for the most part, not eat. I mean, mm-hmm. we would dig through the trash cans and try to find ways to have food, but we wouldn't make anything. And so she was very good at letting us think that she had eyes everywhere. And so because she told me that I was the man of the house about the time that I was eight or nine, my mom decided that it was in her best interest for me to start giving out the punishments that she had for us. So if she wanted us to have a beating, it was my job to beat all the rest of my siblings with whatever she gave me until she was tired. Um, and it was very much that conversation of, if you don't do it, I will, and it'll be worse for them and you'll join. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, every time I have to tell that part, I really, it it is hard because I want this to be the part where I say I took the stand and I, you know, stop my mom and move, but it's not the case. And I very much, I started um, beating my siblings for her. And, Mm -hmm. you know, part of it was that fear factor and that survival. Mm -hmm. And the other part was the brainwashing that, you know, she was able to get me to start thinking, well, if I'm out of it, maybe they are doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the thing that makes that the hardest is that they my siblings never hated me for that. Afterwards, we would sit there, we would cry together, we would try to, you know, find things to laugh about, wish my mom dead, things like that and, you know, try to move on. Um but that became our life until um August of 99 when we had what would be our last investigator come to the house. I and mean, at that time, my mom had resorted to locking two of my brothers downstairs during the day while she was gone. So she would tie them up, she would tie the door um, and gag them, tell us to go to school, and not tell anyone what was going on. And when she found out this investigator was coming, she told us to tell the investigator that they were with their biological dad because their behaviors were so severe. So we were, were very well versed in this. We understood the routine. We had multiple investigators in our homes in those 10 years. And again, it was that threat. If you don't, it's going to happen to you. But if you do, we'll feed you. So this investigator comes out. She does a just a very... Um, Small search of the house, does a very preliminary search, makes sure that there's food in the cabinet and just stays on the main level, um, asks us all the same questions we were used to asking. And right before leaving, she does ask, where are your brothers? In which case, we rehearse exactly, we repeat exactly what our mom told us to. And she said, well, I'm going to have to see them before I can close out your case. Well, unfortunately, she didn't follow through on that. And so she went back to her supervisor. They signed out the case saying no services were needed without ever seeing my brothers and two months later my mom got mad at them for sneaking out of the the basement and getting food and she had me run a hot bath that she pushed them into which burned their skin um, leading to infections that two weeks later did kill them and so um, when that happened for us we became this family that Everyone that knew about and we were in mm-hmm. the system and everyone wanted to wrap around supports for us. And, and they were outraged at my mom and the system. But for me at that point, I was absolutely furious and done with everyone. And so at that point, we went into the Salvation Army Children's Shelter where we stayed for six months.
0: And how old were you?
1: I was 10 at the time that I came into care. And
0: how old were was your sister and your younger brother?
1: My sister was 12 and my younger brothers were 8 when um so Jerry survived and Larry and Gary died when they were 8. All
0: right. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um when we come back on fostering hope we are going to talk a little bit about Nathan's experiences in foster care um and what that looked like coming from such a, a terrible um start. So, Nathan, thank you, and we will be back with Fostering Hope. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. We are um, speaking with Nathan Ross, who is our host, usually, here on Fostering Hope. Today, you get myself, Liz Luce, and Jennifer Townsend. He just went through telling us his story um, before coming into foster care. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I know that must be difficult. What um, we left off on was you going into the shelter with your siblings. So can you tell us what that looked like for you entering foster care after the experience that you had?
1: Yes. So we spent six months at the Salvation Army. And in that time, my biological father moved back from Indiana to try to get custody of me and my sister. And he was told that he would have to take my brother as well, which he agreed to do. So he and his wife came up and started visits with us and started that process. But we were very terrified of him. All we had were the stories of my birth mom who told me that he was abusive and that he, you know, hit her and knocked her teeth out and things like that. And so that's all we had to go on. So we were very adamant about not wanting to go with him um, through some circumstances and them finding out what was going on with his own family in Indiana. We ended up not going to live with him. And so we lingered in the at the Salvation Army, longer than kids typically are supposed to Mm -hmm. um, be there before we were told we were going to a home in Belton, Missouri. So when we found out we were going to Belton, had no idea what it was, and (laughs) in 19, it was 2000 at this time, um, three urban kids (laughs) moved to country, what we considered hick town, uh, Belton, Missouri. You know, at the time, we moved there and saw these two elderly 65 60 year old white people who are supposed to become our parents and so it was a very big cultural shock for us you know we saw people riding horses and pulling things on tractors and stuff and it Uh didn't make any sense. And it seemed, honestly, we were going to die. I mean, that's, (laughs) that's clearly because, you know, in our culture, it was very much white people are the enemy and like, that's the epitome of the, the racist white people are in the country. Uh So we thought this is how they're going to get rid of us in the foster care (laughs) system. Uh, the benefit though, for me was that because our foster parents were elderly and white, it allowed me to not have to worry about attaching to them. So, I was very content to be there. They had a very big farm, so we thought they were going to be rich and give us everything we wanted, and we would move through until we aged out. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking at that time.
0: So when when you, when you did move in, I know that you had said earlier, because of the um, enormity of what happened in your case, the supports that surrounded you mm-hmm. were huge. I imagine um, because it was such a high-profile case that you had every service known to man mm-hmm. offered to you. Um what what does that compare to um as far as what you see you know now kids who are system. yeah who are just taken out for reasons that aren't so flashy
1: Yeah and you're absolutely right because our our case was on every news station and you know even nationally our case was on the news we had a lot of support we had uh caseworkers of course and a therapist we also had mentors and tutors we joined a country club, got bikes donated. People gave us stuff from the community to try to, you know, help make things feel better. Um, we had every opportunity afforded to us that we needed and it was, it was great. Now I can see the benefit as an adult now, but as a kid, it was just stuff. You know, it was great that people were giving us bikes and, you know, we got to go swimming, but I didn't appreciate how much it was helping my life until I got to the, you know, my adulthood. So it was something that I ex- assumed was typical for kids in care until I started working in this field mm-hmm. and realizing that kids who've gone through similar circumstances as I have um, but didn't have the publicity that went with it are bouncing around from multiple homes, aren't getting nearly the amount of supports, aren't having the stability that I was afforded, and are having a lot of those consequences that come from being abused and neglected. And we had a lot of people who assumed that we would, have a lot of long-term mental health issues mm-hmm. and developmental delays. And it, I honestly can tell you it's because of the supports that we had in place that shepherded us through that, that we were able to get to a place where we stabilized.
0: And your your foster home that you lived in um, in Belton, they were your, I mean, it was a long-term yes. foster home.
1: Yeah, they were. They We were very fortunate. We were, again, 12, 10, and 8 when we came into care, which we are all considered individually extremely hard kids to place um you add the fact that we're siblings makes it harder you add our story it makes it even more difficult and so the fact that we were able to stay together in one home before we went to our adoptive resources was amazing at the time for me it was traumatizing because i had assumed that if i was good that i would get to stay with this foster family forever and so though i went in there thinking i don't have to connect to these people because our supports were so consistent and because our foster parents were so great at meeting us where we were, I started to bond to them. I did bond to them, and I thought, though I will never see you as mom and dad, I can't see you as grandma grandpa. grandpa. Mm-hmm. Um, I love you guys. I want to be here. Now, I'm not verbalizing that at 11 years old, but, you know, those are the, mm-hmm. basically the feelings. So when we were told we were going to an adoptive resource, I was devastated. I didn't understand why. And that was compounded by the fact that my sister and I ended up moving to the adoptive resource, and my brother ended up staying with our foster family and getting adopted by them eventually. And so, so, how I,
0: did how did they manage to break down that wall? What, I mean, what sort of um, things? led you to be able to attach to them?
1: Oh, uh, we were the hellion children. I mean, we were those kids that really you hear about the typical foster child, the kid that, you know, throws things, cusses and stuff like the We tried all of that because we found out that in foster care you can't be spanked. And so mm-hmm. we did everything we could. It was, you know, a holiday for us and our pa- the Jack and Kaylee, mm-hmm. they were so great they were so great that they were very much that accommodating they were hey i need you to go to timeout hey can you you know stop they didn't yell at us they asked permission they were um they gave us the chance to have the emotions that we were supposed to suppress when we lived with you know our birth mom Mm -hmm. and they continued to again reinvest they held us accountable though with school and you told us you have to do homework, you have to meet these criteria. So we have those consequences, but in a very nurturing way. And that's what started to break down that wall. And so before I even realized it, it was never a conscious, oh, I'm deciding that I'm going to love you. It mm-hmm. was very much that over those two and a half years that we were there, because they kept reinvesting, we realized that no matter what we did, they weren't going to hurt us. Mm-hmm. And the same with our other supports, our mentors and tutors and things like that. That's when that wall started to come down. And so then moving to the Ross house, it all went right back up because, you know, I kind of convinced myself before going to Jack and Kaylee's that I didn't need anyone and that adults couldn't be trusted. And if they, you know, if I let them into my life, they would manipulate and hurt me. And so that got lessened with Jack and Kaylee and then went right back. And I was blaming myself again. You know, I told you not to do this, you know, Ronald, because people will hurt you. Adults will disappoint you.
0: Do you feel like you were um, able to make an attachment I, and this, um, is a question probably that you know now that you probably weren't thinking mm-hmm. of then, but be, because you had that first five years where your mom was, you know, a very loving and, and non-abusive great mom until mm-hmm. she, you know, couldn't handle what was going on anymore. Because you had that um, during those very first years, do you believe it was easier to attach and to to get through that than it would have been had you been neglected from the very beginning?
1: No, I, for me, it actually made it extremely difficult to attach. And it's something that even as a a 28 year old today, it's still not easy for me to just attach to people. I, at that time, that was still my birth mom. And I put her above everyone else with the exception of Katina and Jerry. Um, But so she was it. I didn't want to attach to anyone. And that conflict made it extremely difficult. And then there was that abandonment and the worry of, you know, they're going to hurt me. And if she loved me and could do this, are, other what are people can. who have no connection to me going to do to me? And mm-hmm. so, it, I mean, it's hard to say what I would have been like if I was neglected, but I can't say that it was extremely difficult because I wasn't super neglected all the time. There were good times with Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, so,
0: so you knew that if you trusted someone that anyone could disappoint you. Right. Absolutely. Um, So we uh, will be coming back with Fostering Hope and speaking to you a little bit about um, what it looked like when you move in with the Ross family and what adoption looked like. And I'm very excited to hear all about that uh, when we come back on Fostering Hope. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. This is today's host, Liz Luce, with uh, other host, Jennifer Townsend. Hello, Jennifer. You do that intro into the segment so well, Liz. Thank you so Beautifully much. Yeah. Beautifully Thank you. Done. We're here with Nathan, our usual host, um, who is today our guest. And he is speaking to us a little bit about his experience in foster care. And we uh, left off sort of when he moved from his first foster home, his one foster home, into what would become his adoptive placement.
2: So how, does, how did that happen? How did how did you come to have contact with the Rosses? Right. How did they come into the, your life?
1: So how I remember it is a little different than how it is on paper. Mm-hmm. When I got my records, I saw it differently. When we f- first got told about the Rosses, to me, what I remember is it was a blind sight. Like we were in family therapy, and they told us, hey, you're going to be moving. Um, and when I got my records, it was very much this long to do like, hey, this is a foster home. I remember going to the fairs. I just had no concept that foster and adoption weren't the same word that could just be interchanged. Mm-hmm. The fair. Uh, what do you mean by the fair? Oh, there was an. Ad- they used to have adoption fairs, and I think some places still do them, where you basically take kids around like cattle and show them off to people to try to buy. It is what it feels like, mm-hmm. you know? Like, hey, do a little song and dance, and you might get a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's- <laughs>
2: like speed dating, but yeah, for adoption. Yeah, and yeah. so.
1: You know, one of the things that sucked about that is that you know all these people are looking for kids, so then you don't have a family afterwards. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with you, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, we had those, I but I never, again, put a lot of thought into them. And so I was very, very angry when we moved to the Rosses and told myself that I was not going to let these people trick me like, you know, my foster family had. And when we grew up with, when we were in foster care, it was just me and my siblings. And mm-hmm. so when I moved to the Ross house... There were, I think, nine other kids already in the family. Um, So that was very shocking and terrifying, and I told people repeatedly that I did not want to live there.
2: So you felt manipulated by your mother and then tricked by your foster family. Yes. So you're going into a pre-adoptive home, what would be your adoptive home, with that Kind of looming over you. Exactly. So,
1: okay. So I tried to do similar things that I did in the foster family, but on a much smaller scale because my survival instincts were still there. And Laurie and Randy were much younger, Mm -hmm. and it was the first time having a young dad, and I wasn't sure what he would do. I knew that you couldn't be spanked in foster care, but I also knew that you weren't supposed to be beating your, at this time, you weren't supposed to be beating your children. My mom had done it. So, Mm -hmm. um, I was very terrified as to what they could do and so I did not push too far. I found the line and just always went right to it and then tried to get them because my goal was get them to move me to another family. And I remember my mom specifically, you know, telling me and other siblings at the time, doesn't matter what you're what you do you're stuck here you know basically almost like a threat you know you're Mm -hmm. in this family no matter if you want to be or not and so you know it wasn't like it clicked oh okay she really means it but that you know those type of um interactions did start to kind of chip away at that for me Mm
2: -hmm. you said you wanted to be moved to another home did you have an ideal home did you have something in mind that you wanted rather than the ross home
1: um, I think, honestly, it, there was a quite a long time that I still hoped to go back to my birth mom mm-hmm. at this time. I'm pretty sure I knew we weren't going to because I was I would have been 13 when I came to the Rosses. And so when I was living with my foster family, we found out that she was sentenced to multiple life sentences in jail. So we knew we weren't going back. Mm-hmm but that was the only go to that i had i didn't know where else i wanted to go i just knew i didn't want to stay there like the, the accountability was much more intense mm-hmm. um i had siblings who to me were awful um you know they i did not like having other people and other kids with other you know personalities who could they could hit me you know if mm-hmm. they wanted to mm-hmm. they didn't say I have to be foster parents mm-hmm. um you know i didn't like having <laughs> to do all those interactions when it was just me and my siblings i was used to a certain amount of really authority over them you know i was raised that way and so having older siblings for the first time who were stable and who were like a little boy (laughs) go sit down Mm -hmm. i hated it i hated not having the most control and so i wanted to leave repeatedly
2: um, you had mentioned in the first segment that school was really just a place to be a class c- clown and to try to get food so mm-hmm. um, obviously at this point in your life present day you're a college graduate successful mm-hmm. you know man um, what was school like for you when you were in the Ross home
1: um, it, I really my parents were much very much the consequencing you know if you don't get a certain amount of grades, you're grounded, things like that. And so that was helpful. But for me with the schooling thing, I had a tutor, Susie, and she was actually on this show mm, when we first started. I didn't know
2: that's how you knew her. Yeah, huh.
1: Yeah. she was a nanny for the Ross family when I moved in. And so, um, but she and her husband um, took me and my sister under their wing and really tutored us very intensely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so building that social support relationship, having that mentoring relationship from them, uh it made me not want to disappoint them educationally and so I had my parents who I didn't want to disappoint I wanted them to see me as the good kid and then I had Susie and Zach who I wanted to see me as a good student because mm-hmm. you know they set goals for me and when I would achieve them they did this reward you know consequence system and so that really helped me get on track with school and uh, again that was for like the first year and a half I was there mm-hmm. um, and once I got on track they kind of it backed out and it just became my norm. And my expectation, once I met it, was that mm-hmm. I continued to meet it. And so, um, that's really what changed me for school is finding those people that kind of kicked me in the butt and said, you have to. Mm-hmm.
0: And I know it really go. actually worked well for Katina too. She ended up giving the valedictorian speech. Right. At her, um, alternative school. Right. Yeah. It was absolutely.
1: Amazing. And so, cause we, we were behind. I mean, we started to catch up when we were with, um, jack and Kay, but we there were pieces in middle school that we didn't realize we didn't get mm-hmm. and then going into high school we realized we were a little behind on it. and so mm-hmm. honestly without the support of my parents and without the support of zach and Susie and suzy especially who went with me to my freshman um high school and said hey don't hold him back please let him be in this class so that he can get on track with mm-hmm. his students mm-hmm. those are the things that changed my academic trajectory
2: mm-hmm. So supporting you, but also advocating for you yes. um, to other professionals. Very
1: direct advocacy. Mm-hmm. Very much. It really did. It shaped the course of my my life.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, at some point, you started to stabilize. I mean, outside mm-hmm. of school specifically, you started right. to stabilize in the home. Can you speak to how that came to be a little bit?
1: Yeah. Uh, one of my sisters, Emma, was the first person that um, greeted me and, and my sister, Katina, when we got there and she was eight years old at the time, but she just was kind of like, oh, cool, new kids. And so she instantly we had bonded and she helped me feel like the family was good. And I was asking her all types of questions like, hey, do these parents beat their kids, you know, and trying to get like the, the load down from her. And you know, she was like, oh, no, this is good. And this is what's good about the house. And this is and I had a lot of questions about my dad because, again, there's a male for the first time in my life who was young who wasn't aggressive or abusive to my mom. And so I wasn't sure what his mm-hmm. motives were. And mm-hmm. so I asked a lot of questions about him. And, you know, so that piece really helped. And then again, it really was that having normalized experiences because of my adoptive parents, you know, it wasn't just uh we're holding you to this line because you're in foster care with these consequences. It was, you can be as normal as you want to be. You can be more than your story and we expect you to. So, mm-hmm. Yes, we're going to hold you to this academically, but also we're going to give you these rewards and these abilities because you're doing what you're supposed to do. So being able to go and hang out with friends, being able to eventually, you know, get a car, get a cell, do all the things that my peer group were doing. That was very important. And also, I mean, the part that people often miss is that I was developmentally behind. I mean, I missed out on a lot of childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, My parents were very good about letting me be eight, nine years old when I was at home and then being 14 or 15 when I was at school out with my peers, because Uh that's what I needed. I needed to, what did that look like? So, I mean, I mean, honestly, Emma being my sister, she was the only person who was there in my age group. She played with dolls. And so I played with dolls with her, you know, Uh I would do whatever it is that she was doing and then we would play make believe and we would do all that stuff. And so I found, and then I would go to middle school and, you know, have to be with my peer group and, of course, be with the boys. And so the card games, the Hot Wheels, the Nerf guns, all Mm -hmm. that stuff, loved it. And so it was really going back and forth with that balance. But I was never shamed when I was at home. You know, it was never, Mm -hmm. you're a boy, you're a 15-year-old boy, why aren't you acting like it? And so by the time that I got really into the later, middle, late parts of high school, I was really pretty much on target um, developmentally i had a once i had a job really everything started to flow um i got a job and started to get on there so by the time i went to college it was people who eventually found out my story had no idea mm-hmm. that i came from the life that i did and it's really because i had that experience when I was at home to really go through those formative years mm-hmm. quickly um, but still have the ability to do so
2: well, how old were you when you were actually adopted by the rosses
1: i was adopted when i was 13 or 14. I can't remember how old I was because um, it was in between semesters. And so mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was right after the semester when I would have turned 14 or right before. So I think I was 13 when I was adopted.
2: Did you know did you notice any big change? Did you feel notably different immediately following your adoption?
1: No. And um it was one of those things I was progressive. I felt re- a little bit relieved that I was, uh, you know, I got to change my name. And so I was a Ross. And so I knew that they were my parents. But I also went through a long time where I did want people to know that I was in foster care. And having my parents who were white was mm-hmm. an obvious clue. And then having as many siblings as I had was an obvious clue. And so I w- really tried to reject them a lot. When I was out in public, I didn't want to be associated with my family at mm-hmm. all. Um And it really wasn't until I was my second year of college that it started to be okay um, mm-hmm. that I was adopted and I was adopted by white people and I had 50 billion siblings. Um, so while I felt a little bit connected to them and I loved them um, as much as I could at that time, there was still a part of me that rejected them um, into my twenties.
2: Did your siblings or your parents ever talk to you about feeling rejected by you?
1: Not that I remember. Um, we're not a, big family on words like that (laughs) Uh, it's mostly sarcasm and put downs Uh um and we do it in a very loving way but um can you attest to that liz uh,
0: i can we are very good at it
1: (laughs) but i i do have i as my survival instinct part of it was just being able to read them and so i was able to do that and figure out you know that i need to give a little more
2: Wonderful. Well, um, when we come back, I think we're going to talk more about what Nathan's life has looked like in adulthood. Um, You're listening to Fostering Hope.
0: Welcome back to Fostering Hope. This is your Today host, Liz Luce, with my Today co-host, Jennifer Townsend, and we are fortunate enough to be talking to Nathan Ross, who is our usual host. He has um, very wonderfully told us his story. Thank you so much for that, and let us know about his experience with foster care and um, being adopted. Now we kind of want to go into, you are a seemingly pretty successful adult. Um, You seem pretty normal.
1: Seemingly. Yeah, yeah. Mo-
0: <laughs> most of the time you seem pretty normal. Yeah. Um <laughs> We would like to uh, I guess talk to you a little bit about what adult life has looked like for you yep. um and and how your past has affected you know your choices today
1: yep absolutely so um at, when I was eighteen, you know it was the very typical you graduate from high school go off to college type thing, and so that was one of my um times that I can remember being very hesitant. I was very excited to go to college and I remember uh, mom my mom and dad um taking me to school, moving me in. And I thought it was perfectly fine. I thought I was done enough with them that going off to school was going to be no big deal. And I remember them leaving and me kind of being depressed, honestly, Mm -hmm. for the first few hours that I was there and then the first couple of weeks because I was like, wait, my family isn't here. And I only grew up with the Rosses for five years before Mm -hmm. I went off to school. And so it wasn't a long time to be in that family to then go and do something as big as going off to college and so it was a little bit of an adjustment um but then being able to come home for christmas and thanksgiving being able to call them especially when i needed money um, (laughs) and having them you know scold me but then give it to me uh, (laughs) those things helped me stay connected and then eventually you know when i moved back home and started working in the field um you know working for our mother that you know kind of really helped me tie in and so it was about really the time that i was a going to come home from school I went to college for three years before I came back and it was about that time that I really started to connect to the family I like feel super connected like oh this is this is my family I can tell people I'm adopted and that's also because I started telling my story about that time so mm-hmm. it was one of those things that was you know very um, fortunate for me in having that therapeutic you know release and in bonding with my my parents
2: So speaking of bonding with your parents, you discussed that you had a lot of questions about your father Mm -hmm. when first moving to the Ross Ranch, a lot of hesitancies. Um, How has your relationship with him specifically changed over the years? What is it like now?
1: Um, Much better. And he was actually, it was much easier for me to accept him as dad than it was to accept my mom as mom. And so though I had a lot of questions and was hesitant, once emma kind of talked me through those things and i got to see very quickly that he was really laid back person i was like dad cool i never had one i like it like the name that sounds great (laughs) let's move forward and then so you know that has maintained my dad again is you know not to sound cheesy or cliche but he's my inspiration for what i want to be as a dad when i you know grow up become a parent adult you know Mm -hmm. um so he's that person though that i get to see how he interacts with you know his wife and us as his children and it's really cool and so i have you know we're great um and then my mom and i are great now as well but it was again very hard it was one of those things like throwing up to try to say mom instead Mm -hmm. of lori because again i knew my mom for 10 years and even now, I still have a love for my birth mom. And so at that time, it was extremely, I felt like I was betraying her, calling mm-hmm. someone else her name. You know, that was that was her name. I can't call this person who was doing all the things a mom should do. I couldn't call her that. And so that was a big struggle for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of just clicked one day.
0: Hmm. Yeah, well, you use it all the time now.
1: Yeah. Yep. Now it's hard not not to call her mom <laughs> in a professional meeting when I'm talking with other people because it's awkward. It's know? hard not
2: to call her your mom when yeah. we're at work. I tried really hard to say Lori, but yeah. it's hard not to say your yeah. mom. Yeah, so
1: it's an interest. I would have never, you know, 14 years ago, would have never thought that it would be hard for me to call her by her first name uh-huh. and versus mom. So. <laughs>
2: Um, so as an adult who not only was in foster care, adopted from foster care, but has chosen a career in foster care, can you speak to um, the importance of the system? I mean, we know that there are things that we could always improve upon, but can you speak yeah. to maybe some positive things that came out of it for you?
1: Yeah, um, because I had such a great experience in foster care and, and finding an adoptive home. That 's my motivation for why I 'm in this system again, as an adult, finding out that my my experience was atypical, it kind of fru it not kind of it extremely frustrated me, mm-hmm. uh, and then hearing about kids aging out just broke my heart and so seeing all the things that have changed since I've been in this field for the last five years has been really cool. A lot of the community supports that are there wrapping around kids, the biggest thing that continues to be a need for our kids to me and what helped me get through it is that attachment piece. People don't I don't think they people forget the social part of the social services Mm -hmm. and that every caseworker that comes into a kid's life and then leaves is a broken attachment. Every therapist, every doctor, every person that has some bond with them that Mm -hmm. then leaves without any kind of formalized or informalized goodbye process is breaking a very significant attachment. And the same is true with foster parents. I mean, You go in, as a foster parent, you go in knowing that a place is temporary, but kids don't always understand that. Mm -hmm. Even when you explain it to them, I'm an example. I was told, I read my files and see that I was told, but I did not understand it. Mm -hmm. So you leaving, I go to a different home, and you're just going on with your life, is really damaging. And so I really hope that everyone listening, all of our community people, teachers, you know, pastors, friends, that they realize those attachments are so important and everything that you can do to help solidify those mm-hmm. is great. I, I I, just, you know, got married a couple weeks ago and my foster parents were there. My foster parents walked in the processional because they've always been a part of my life. And that's what I feel. You know, I realized that foster parents have lots of kids coming in and out of their home, but I think that that's important. I needed to know that they still cared about me mm-hmm. and that fact that they stayed attached really helped me keep my bond with my adoptive family. Cause mm-hmm. I realized, okay, it's just a shift, it's not mm-hmm. a break. Um which then helped me of course solidify a relationship with the person I'm now married to.
2: Did the system do you feel do a good job of helping you to maintain sibling bonds with your brother and sister?
1: Yeah, it- And that, again, was one of those things, because we were adopted, my parents were very good about. And Mm -hmm. so we were only, I think, in the Ross home for like six months before we were adopted. And Mm -hmm. so it wasn't a whole lot of time for the system to really mess up our sibling (laughs) bond. Mm -hmm. Um, So both sets of parents were very good about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really, it became an issue with us as siblings. I was very mad at my brother because I felt like he chose them over us. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't want to talk to him for a long time. And so we've had that back and forth. Mm -hmm. But both sides were very good about I knew where they were. I could get to them whenever I needed to. And having those attachments again became extremely important and vital for me ongoing. And again, even now.
2: You're connected with your siblings? Eh.
1: <laughs> I know where they are. I mean, it, it You is probably talk to them
2: as much as I talk to my brother. Yeah, it's one
1: of those things where I've learned, thank God, that siblings even from all walks of life have those issues where it's mm-hmm. not necessarily because you're blood that you're super bonded. And so mm-hmm. we're all kind of doing our own thing right now. Yeah. But it's one of those things that we also are there when we need each other and so that's you know important and
0: And i will point out nathan that you are basically i don't know how you were not my biological sibling uh,
1: basically because we're
0: pretty much the same uh human beings it's very very strange to me that you were adopted because i feel like you are my twin or something i agree
2: you i mean definitely physically (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly what I meant. <laughs> I
0: meant in awesomeness. But yeah. um, I I think that, thank goodness, you ended up with us because I would have been missing out on a whole lot if you had not.
1: Yeah, I'm very fortunate for all the supports that I've had, honestly. Those, and I can't even say the word attachment enough, has been so important for me and will be helpful in me, with me becoming a parent and helpful with the work that I do now. And so we have to keep those attachments with our teens who are in care as well.
0: Absolutely. And that is what we will be focusing on this month in our show. Thank you, Nathan, so much for being on Fostering Hope today. Um, You've been listening to Fostering Hope, brought to you by Foster.Connect, a comprehensive regional support and advocacy center for abused and neglected children and the families caring for them. To learn how to become a foster parent or how you can help vulnerable kids in other ways, visit us at foster.org or foster.connect on Facebook and Twitter.